Okay, hello and welcome to a new podcast that my friend Sarah and I are going to be recording called Shelf Absorbed. I think we we literally just agreed on that. In which we talk about books and films. Sarah's primarily into books and, and since being in Fiji she started a book club. I'm primarily into films and since being in Fiji I started a film club. So yeah, we met very recently and decided that we should do this. That, that book looks massive. I was going to maybe ask to borrow a few of these books that we're going to talk about off you. Um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll read If Bill Street Can Talk first, though, um, because uh, because I'm really interested to see how, how the, the, the prose matches up to the to the film, which I saw for the first time recently. Barry Jenkins. Barry Jenkins. What a genius. Who we both love. Yeah, yeah what yeah. a genius. Well, where should we start with the book? One of my favourite quotes that I found was James Baldwin writing to his brother David, described it as the strangest novel he had ever written. And I'm just sort of, you've not heard these quotes before that I've got. Why why do you think he described it in that way? Um, Yeah, interesting, because I would have thought out of all the James Baldwin books that I've read, seemingly just two, um, the other one being Giovanni's Room, I would have maybe classed that. I mean, I, I absolutely, like, embarrassingly so, being, you know, a black woman mm. um i'm very quite i was quite late into the scene sort of discovering james baldwin as a writer yeah. embarrassingly so because obviously since then i've then gone on to sort of discover how what an incredible writer and how sort of poignant um and important his writing was for that particular time in america and obviously for now specifically for what's gone on this week if bill street could talk i found was just fantastic it's sort of again tick boxes race injustice love just you know the law, all these religion i mean it's it's really where can you end right yeah, yeah. you know you've got tish the girlfriend um and then you've got you know the characters tish and funny who are completely in love and she's pregnant and then you know he gets accused of a, a crime he hasn't committed have we not heard this one before and you know this you know the stories told from obviously tish's sort of um viewpoint um I, yeah it's interesting that that quote his brother would quote that as a sort of a weird story i mean i don't know what did he say specifically what he found weird about that story? Well, I didn't. I didn't actually uh, read any more than that. This was quoted in a review, um, so yeah. I, I would say that maybe uh, it's interesting because of the because of his attempt to push this into kind of black female subjectivity as a sort of. Uh, he was accused many times of, of being very, very focused on masculinity and queer masculinity. So perhaps this was in 1974, I think it came out, so yeah. fairly late in his life. This was a, an attempt to, to push the black, his, his accounts of the black experience into a more female, gynocentric kind of uh, yeah. arena. Yeah, I guess. So like thinking about that now in that kind of context, I would say... As opposed to being, did you say weird? The poet said it was strange. Uh, the strangest novel I have ever written. Ah, well, I would, I would say, I would, I would say, scrap the fact that it was strange. I thought it was like bold. The mm. fact that you got this gay black guy writing from, you know, writing a story in a woman's viewpoint. I thought it was, I think it's a bold statement more so, and I think yeah. it's really important, yeah. right? Um, because that's completely different to the guy's his experience of being a black gay guy in America mm. at that particular time. I, I absolutely loved it. Um, I was a bit sceptical when I heard that Barry Jenkins was doing his film, film adaptation. Not that I discount Barry Jenkins as an incredible um, film director, Moonlight. Let's just, let's just take a pause for that. Um, I just thought that 
If Bill Street Could Talk is such a classic book that, you know, I'm, I'm always sort of skeptical when people are saying they're going to sort of adapt it into film and how that's going to go. But having seen the film, I think he's done an incredible job with it. Yeah. But I guess you could talk about that more. Um, I thought the characters, I mean, it's just, hmm. but again, up there in my top, I'd say in my top 20, I've got a lot of books on my shelf, in my top 20. But I think I would urge people to go out and expand their, you know, their their library um, collection of James Baldwin but Giovanni's Room is also a fantastic book, even smaller than If Bill Street Could Talk. And in those, in those, I think it was like 100, 200 pages, if not less, he's able to just basically, again, weave a fantastic story about these two guys, gay guys, in again, in America, um, who are living out this like love story. Yeah. And he just does it, and he's again the prose, his style of language, um, the literature. It's just, it's just beautiful. It's poetic, and you sort of, you sort of finish, and you, you don't want more. You just want to read it again because yeah. you're like, wow, this. And then you would want. It's the kind of book you would discuss easily over a dinner party, and easily recommend to other people. Yeah. Absolutely, man, and uh, I, c- I can recommend uh, another country as well, which which is the only kind of um, uh, fiction book that I've that I've read by him. I think what's really interesting for me again, and I'm I'm kind of I've got a few of these quotes that I think uh, might be quite interesting to to prompt a little bit of discussion, that when it came out originally, the New York Times was incredibly dismissive. So you just described it as being poetic, and and, I think that his prose is some of the most beautiful prose ever committed to the page. Um, But there was a review that came out that described it as mawkish, uh, stale jazz, and I think there's a bit of kind of racism going on here, definitely, and dated, and this reviewer said in the New York Times that, black experience in America was a bone that Baldwin had already picked clean. So there's this idea that that in in, in the 70s that, that race has been resolved in some way. And here we are today in 2020 with clear evidence across America and that's the interesting thing about the, if Bill Street could talk he says every black person was born in America was born on Bill Street, doesn't he? So uh, what do you think about that? What do you think about the, dis- the repression or the dismissiveness of, of that account of, uh, of the black experience back then? Uh, and how does it kind of relate now? Well, I mean, first off, this is a quote taken from what? The New York Times? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's just dismiss that completely. We are talking about the New York Times, which has probably got the most amazing, fantastically racist undertones ever known. Well, not as bad as Fox News, but it's up there. So I completely dismiss that. I think, you know, given what's gone on in the past week, as we know, you know, America literally is on fire due to the unlawful, horrendous killing um, of George Floyd. Um, Innocent 40-year-old man has gone off to just buy cigarettes, is accused of using counterfeit $20 note. Bam, gets his neck crushed. I mean, yeah, I mean, I didn't want to sort of... It's crazy when we sort of came up with the idea with a podcast and had already sort of picked out the books that we have done. This was several Um, weeks ago, right? Yeah. Um, and then since then, a lot has gone on um, to do with race. No, race is always going to be an issue in America um, and globally. And I feel like, you know, if Bill Street could talk, Fonny is accused of a, a crime he's not committed. Yeah. George Floyd has had his neck crushed for a crime he hadn't committed. I mean, that was the 1970s fiction. And here we are now in June 2020. Yeah. Um, not 
nothing has changed we haven't learned anything no one has learned anything and it's you know we are we are as a, as a black woman um i'm angry we're all angry and it's been it's been humbling to see the response online on news radio of people sort of feeling galvanized and you know wanting to read up like reaching out i've had friends and People reach out wanting to learn more and, you know, what they can do. They feel guilty. It's like, well, guys, wake up. Hello. This has been going on for centuries for us. And it's, you know, I, I hope this, and I hope it's not like a, a knee-jerk reaction to sort of black out your Instagram page or, you know, sign up to Black Lives Matter and donate. I mean, we need to keep this momentum up. If you're in America in November and you've got the right to vote, put your vote in, you know, vote keep you know keep marching keep reading like for me reading is knowledge is power and whether it's fiction or not fiction i think people need to become a lot more aware of you know the fact that they've got this you know a lot of the stories that translate from you know our real life there are not enough publishers that kind of accept writing from black authors or black writing or black stories it's only like the last week people are starting to kind of wake up but I don't know if it's just sort of a knee jerk again, like we're in this kind of bubble of, oh, let's help, let's tick box and help, you know, like let's help black people and feel like, you know, we feel less guilty and that we're helping out. No, this needs to be a continuous thing. There needs to be complete change. We need to have more representation of, of black people who are in the boardrooms and CEOs and governments in, you know, the big tables, publishing houses, more black writers for people to be aware of not just black diversity. There just needs to be a lot more books and fictions written about the device cultures that we have globally. It's really sad that it has come to yet another killing of a black man for the world to suddenly just be like, oh wow, what can we do about this? Because this has been going on countlessly. And it's not just black men dying um, innocently under the hands of these racist cops. What about the countless black men have been executed innocently? Black men have been executed only years later to be discovered that they're actually innocent. How sick is that? Yeah, I was reading recently about Emmett Till, which is one of the most heartbreaking cases. Uh, he was 14, 15 years old and was accused of wolf whistling, being inappropriate to a white woman, was dragged from his house, tortured and shot in the face. And, and his, his mother had an open casket funeral. There are photographs of him. It's absolutely heartbreaking, absolutely horrendous stuff, but it, but it raised awareness you know back then that was the only the, the, the main media form that, that you had now I guess we have social media like you're saying and and I, th I think it's quite interesting to draw a parallel between this kind of this review from 1974 that suggests that the black American experience is a bone that's been picked clean and you saying that you hope now is not another knee-jerk reaction like clearly this guy thinks that the 60s is done and that's problem's been solved and and yeah let's move on but it, it hasn't because like you say it's been going on for hundreds of years Years, hundreds and hundreds of years and I think there was uh, perhaps a feeling that the Black Lives Matter movement after reaching a peak you know a high watermark had started to maybe recede a little bit so now it's it's peaked again and and I hope that um, like you say the momentum that's that's been generated continues uh, and real change occurs at a you know that we've got to try and translate what's happening in protest to political change which is the, the big transition like you say i really do feel like again you know related to sort of like reading 
like the education, knowledge is power. Education, starting from little, starting from your homes, talk to each other amongst your friends, amongst your family, amongst your peers. There's gonna be some uncomfortable discussions, but uncomfortable is good. Why not? Why is it that I like these stories that are kind of really dark? It's because it makes you brings up these uncomfortable subject matters like childhood trauma, sexual violence, that you know, like people go through this stuff, you know, and it is uncomfortable, but it doesn't lessen the fact that it, it doesn't happen. You know what I mean? And so I feel like, I mean, I was, it's shocking that, you know, there's, there is nothing on the British curriculum that says, that talks about slavery, windrush, you know, uh, apartheid, nothing at all. I mean, why is that? When I was at school, we learned about, what did we learn about? The Tudors, great. <laughs> we learned about the Holocaust, shocking. But there was nothing on slavery. So I, you know, I'd, I'd have to learn that through family. And it would just be sort of like comments like, cause you're black, you're gonna have to work harder. And you'd be like, what does that mean? And then as you grow, you kind of get to know that. Oh, why is your hair looks like that? Did they, you know, did they, did they use, you know, I'd be having my hair braided or, or threaded. And you get these like comments like, ah, oh, did your mum use a sewing machine to do that together? They'll just be little kind of, you know, as you grow up, there is, it's true. You know, racism, it's kind of like COVID, right? If you're a black person, it's kind of like, it, 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 it may seem invisible, but it's not. It's completely out there. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's good. I, what I think this is all doing is that it's washing up a lot of uncomfortable stuff for people, which is great. People of, who are not black, which is great because it, it's making people feel uncomfortable. It's making people talk. Go online. There are so many resources. Google, reach out. I've only just recently discovered a fantastic publishing house called Dialogue Books that is headed up by Charmaine Ludgrave, who coincidentally, I realized, we were at primary school together. Now, um, Dialogue Books specifically um, um, publishes books by from the BAM community, written by black people, and that's fantastic. And that kind of draws me into the next book I kind of wanted to just plug that's recently, that's just recently been um, published called Rainbow Milk by Paul Mendes. And, you know, I guess before going into the talking about the book, what is, what I love about dialogue books is that there are just not enough publishing houses that specifically are publishing books for white, black writers. And why is that? It's it's just nuts. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's got a lot to do with. I mean, uh, the invisibility that you were just talking about. You know that, that that these stories are not visible. Stories of childhood trauma. Stories of uh, like the Bane experience um, are are not given. Uh, well, they're not in the mainstream, and they they're need not. to be dragged into. You know. So uh, it's like um, Chinua Achibi says that you need a balance of stories. Very, very important quote. I think that. Uh, that that could be related to this. We need stories about every single kind of uh, identity, every single kind of experience. 100%. If we're going to promote the kind of empathy that we need to to overcome these issues, and there's a there's a huge gap in terms of European colonialism being taught and, and American slave history being taught. Uh, that that kind of um, yeah, that, that needs fixing if, if these problems of, of racial injustice and racial inequality are, are going to be fixed. You can't fix them here and now. You have to go back to the past. You have to look at history in order to understand where these hierarchies and these structures of power that, that, that exist to this day. I think we've, sort of, we've run ahead of ourselves a little bit, so maybe we'll come back to, to if Bill Street could talk. 
there, like you said, there's so many really, really interesting aspects to it. The black female kind of subjectivity and narrator, I think is really, really interesting. Uh, I mentioned before that I thought it was interesting the way that, oh, I mentioned before we started, but what's really interesting for me is the way that it's uh, a kind of, uh, a spiritual and a liberator, a tale of liberation in many ways, even whilst it's a story of incarceration and racial injustice. Um, and I think what happens in terms of literature, Western literature, is that black bodies are often represented in purely corporeal terms, right? They are bodies, they are physical. And I think we can date that back to the slave trade, right? That that's what they were used for. So that's what they had to be constructed as, that's what they had to be represented as. And the problem is that there aren't enough uh, stories about black spirituality, about black freedom, about black intimacy, you know, it, it, it's kind of, it's exploited, the, the kind of black physicality, and that's something that really, really isn't true in the, in the film, and, and I think it comes across in, in the book as well. These are very kind of intimate descriptions, and I think Baldwin as a sort of, as a, uh, as a gay black man is able to, to describe some of the, some of the sexuality and some of the intimacy that is that is missing another thing that's really interesting was you you're talking about um about your hair and uh there's a scene in the film i don't know if it had an equivalent in the book where tish's mother uh, Sharon Rivers, played by Regina King, who's amazing. Amazing. And and one of the things about her performance and so many of the performances, I think, is physically they're understated. It's a film all about looking, all about gazing, all about communicating with the eyes. And that's another interesting thing that I want to talk about later on, how much of the film, the characters look directly at us, directly to the camera, directly at us. One of the scenes where um, Sharon Rivers does that is when she is putting a wig on to go and talk to Victoria Rogers, who is the woman who's accused Fonny of rape. And it reminded me of uh, two things. The first was uh, a short story called uh, Everything Counts by Ghanaian author called Ama Atta Aidu, where she talks about uh, the protagonist of that story has left Ghana and gone to America to study economics and comes back and is kind of a bit horrified by the the westernization and commercialization of her family and one of the central th themes and motifs of that is the, is the wig that, that her sisters wear, the straightened wig. And it also reminded me of a Chris Rock documentary I saw once called Good Hair, which is about, you know, this idea of relaxant and straight and black people, black women straightening their hair. And a quote from that film in particular that always stuck with me, which is when black people's hair is relaxed, white people are relaxed. So I wondered if, uh, if, you, if that's in the book for a start, her wearing that wig, that motif is there, or if it's something that Jenkins has, has brought into the film. Uh, and whether or not it kind of speaks to you in those kind of ways, it, based on what, what you were talking about now with, with the way that people have talked about your hair before. Yeah, well, yes and no, I guess. Um, I think Barry Jenkins, what makes Barry Jenkins, again, one of, like an amazing director, is his, his films are visual, right? Some, a lot of the time, sometimes not much has to be said. It's just the way, like you were saying, the way the actors are sort of looking at themselves. I'm thinking back to Moonlight in that final scene in the kitchen, remember? Not much is said, yeah. but so much is said at the same time. That's, I think, that's where Barry Jenkins is just 
it just takes it, it just brings it home. He is just fantastic in that way. I loved that Chris Rock um, documentary, um, Good Hair. Yes. Yeah, it's, I mean, pretty much sort of, uh, what's great about it is that, yeah, we, we do, we, black, black women, we spend an obscene amount of money on, I guess what, that's what the documentary was really trying to portray, is how much money the industry makes from relaxing our hair, weaves, I mean, braiding my hair, it takes about three hours. I remember being, like, it used to take even longer, I do recall um, that scene in the book, but I don't think it's brought out as it's, I think Barry Jenkins has sort of, in the movie has emphasized it more than I guess it was in the book. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it just, it really kind of struck me as, as soon as I was watching the, the, that, the film, that scene. And I think because of, you know, these other kind of links that I made in my own head to, to the documentary and, and the short story. But then I was, what really kind of, uh, pushed it in another direction is I was reading a reading a review uh, of the film in The Guardian and it said that in that scene she was like a secret agent like she was kind of putting a disguise on going ready to kind of try and talk to uh, to this woman and that that sort of I wondered if it was a sort of um, like uh, like, it, like it was an attempt to kind of infiltrate like to less to look less black to look less African in some way African American um, so, so that was really just very interesting to me, I thought. Well, you know, there's certain ways, I guess, like as black women, if you're lighter shaded brown, if your hair's looking less slick, so it's like looking like less Afro-y, then you're feeling, then, you know, you're perceived as less black, hmm. you know? Um, so if you're wearing a, a weave, for example, and so you, you, you know, you're spending money on, you know, lightening up your skin to look white, it's, you know, you're seeing, hmm. it's, yeah, but it's like a concept that, I mean, I, I don't buy it at all. Do you know what I mean? Right. But it's just like, it's like you're saying, if you, you know, if you're looking less European, then, you know, you, you would be treated differently. Yeah. It's, I, yeah. Like in a way, she's trying to look less threatening by going in for all these kind of ideas that, that have been imposed on, uh, on kind of black culture. Yeah. Westernization I, that, that goes across to the, to the idea in the film, uh, in the short story that I was talking about that, um, it, it challenges heritage, it challenges kind of African culture, and it's a t an attempt to sort of impose a different set of beauty standards, like you say, lightening of the skin as well as another one. Another thing that I thought was really interesting uh, was, the, was the color scheme. And I kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, so in the film, Barry Jenkins, so it's an interesting film in that the, 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 the beauty and the poetic uh, nature of the, of the love story and the way that it's kind of, it is love, it's not, it kind of, it transcends the physical act of love, I think, although there is a very tender and intimate love scene and it, and it transcends words it transcends kind of verbal uh, kind of accounts of love because of these intimate these pauses these silences and these looks and gazes that we've talked about but I also uh, I'm very interested in that melodramatic story and how it kind of reinforces the the, the story of, of the political story so the sexual politics and the and the racial politics how they kind of swarm around each other. The melodrama in particular I'm interested in as a, as a, as a film kind of film fan uh, in terms of the, the, the colour schemes that he uses. So very, very often at the beginning and in the flashbacks when we see Fonny and Tish, we see them dressed in mixtures of blues and yellows or blues and golds. And, and I th those are fascinating colours when you look at their use 
kind of historically throughout the melodramatic genre. There's a very famous director called Douglas Sirk, who, who in the kind of 50s and 60s did these melodramas or women's films that were hugely kind of challenging of uh, uh, sort of reinforcing gender politics, but challenging them in more subtle ways. And one of the ways that he did that was to kind of uh, mise-en-scene and, and decor and color and clothes and lighting. And he, he loved using blue and yellow, so blue, and yellow were used sometimes to represent the calm, safe, and sunny kind of generic symbolisms that we associate with them every day. But also he, he used that he inverted them and he used blue to represent a sort of coldness and a danger and, a, and, a, and an isolation, and yellow to represent a sort of nauseating toxicity or danger rather than a sunniness. And I was fascinated by the way that Jenkins uses both those colours. So, so the blue and the yellow in the flashbacks are part of the costumes of both Fonnie and Tish, and, it's, and it comes across very nice. But those blues, same blues and yellows come into the prison, into the, the current scenes of his incarceration, and take a whole, a whole new kind of meaning. So that was fascinating for me. Sure, and I, you know, I wouldn't, you know, of, 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 of anyone, if you're trying to think about who best to sort of kind of adapt if Bill Street could talk from the, you know, from like an incredible genius like James Baldwin, it's only Barry Jenkins that could have been able to do this as the way as well as he mm. could have done. Mm. You know, I, I couldn't have thought of anyone better to have done that. Yeah, definitely. I also, like I said, uh, so something I was touched on before uh, is the idea of the, the amount of characters that sort of look directly into the camera and look directly at us, which I, I like the idea. It can be used very clumsily, that breaking of the fourth wall, but I love the way that it's used kind of, it's subtly weaved into the to the texture of the film. And I think it's, we have, of course, Tish and Fonny doing direct to camera addresses, which really puts us in that middle space and, and allows us to experience their intimacy through the equality of their gazes. And, and I think that that's, that's another important point as well that comes out, the, the, the way that these characters are equal. And there's some interesting uh, quotes from the book, like um, that we were the flesh of each other's flesh. I remember that was a really interesting it's one brilliant. that I saw. Um, and there, there doesn't seem to be this notion of dominance or power within their relationship. It's all, it's all very much grounded up from, from an equal footing. Both of us seem to be very fascinated with trauma. I do, I, my favorite kind of films are, are primarily horror films, I would say, because they explore personal and cultural traumas and anxieties. And though I, I think the, the reason why they're important and the reason why people like me and you enjoy them is because they, they do make those invisible things visible. And it's only through a process of, the, of that revealing of the things that we repress and the things that we don't want to confront that maybe these more positive stories can start to emerge. These have to be confronted first, don't they? And I think that's the process that's, that we're hopefully going through and we'll pop out the other side at some point and, and we'll get those more positive narratives. Absolutely, Ben, I, I, I totally agree. It was weird, like when I, um, not weird, but when my late husband passed away, the only books that kind of brought me comfort were like the dark ones, like Difficult Women, Roxanne Gay. Um, I remember reading that and it was like short stories. And then again, there's a lot of trauma and there's there's rape and there's there's some really uncomfortable fiction and some really uncomfortable stories in there. But the darker, the better, because I was in this space of my world is absolutely just crumbled. So I'm in a really dark space and it was comforting to kind of read 
other people going through dark stuff because I felt like I was not alone, you know, mm. even though it was like fiction stuff. It's like, right, cool, great. Other people are kind of going through this. I'm like, you're right. I think before we can heal as a world, as we can start to kind of confront what it is. Um, I mean, I saw this video on YouTube yesterday in America where you've got um, all this, this, uh, this group of white people who are kneeling down, crying, begging forgiveness from this, from this white, and it was, yeah, it was, it was really emotive and emotional to watch and it's humbling and it's lovely. But again, we yeah, you're right. We have to go back in time and understand where this has all come from. But once we've understood all those and then confront where we are as individuals and how we conduct ourselves on a daily basis, only then can we all start to kind of move forward. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's another great line and so I'll, I'll bring it again back to film. Uh, another great line in a documentary film on Netflix called 13th, uh, which is just fantastic. Can't recommend it enough. I'm sure many people have seen it already. Yeah, my best mate Emma just forget recommended that. So that's on my weekend list to, right. to watch. So there's this, um, there's a, a historian at the beginning that says, you know, what, what, you, we can't move anywhere until we realize that, that, that within America, within this country, um, if you're white, you're here through choice, your ancestral choice, and if you're black, then you're here through not ancestral choice. And it's that fundamental beginning point of the history and everything that's come afterwards and the machinations and the politics and the 13th Amendment itself was a, was a tool by which when slavery was abolished, black people could still be disenfranchised and still be used for labor, still be used for their physicality rather than having any political say or any kind of um, interior world. Because once they were convicted of a crime, they lost the rights that the abolition of slavery granted them. So that's where the criminality of, of black men predominantly, uh, that's where it has its kind of roots historically in American culture. And it's all economic, it's all political, it's all economic. It's, it's you know, the, it was the South was thinking, how can we still remain a dominant power in the world when we've lost our, our free labour, you know, our slave labour? And before that, as we've said before, it was colonialism that did that. The West and, and, and you know, England, the UK, the country that, that you know, I... I call home is was absolutely founded the the power that they had that they still fallaciously still think they have with things like brexit um is all built on this this kind of horrific history and it's that history that needs to be confronted that needs kind of the stories need to be told and the younger generations need to be educated and then something something like balance could occur yeah and then let's not forget white privilege in the mix of all that of so um amy cooper oh my god if you she's uh that was that was one of the most profound uh you know and blatant representations of of white privilege that i think i've i've ever seen you know it's it's everywhere it's everywhere and it's nowhere it's it's it's, it's kind of ubiquitous but it's invisible and that's what makes it so nefarious and that's why so many white people don't understand it but she knew exactly what she was doing when she put on that voice and said there's an african-american man threatening me in the park and as so many commentators have said, you know, uh, if it hadn't been for the fact that it would be recorded, it could have been another George Floyd. It could have been the same thing again. 
and it's a weaponizing of all these kind of identity politics. Absolutely, it's an absolutely, but it's if, of course that it's a weapon that's used every day, and not just a white woman in a park oh with her dog off the leash, and she's been asked kindly to put the dog on the leash in a bird sanctuary area. It happens every day. White privilege is complete, and so part of the issue is now uh, part of how part of the healing, and I think what's great is people to start to recognize that they have white privilege, but also just us also, and, and it goes further. Like, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm obviously not white, but being an expat in Fiji, we have privilege, we have expat privilege. And yeah. being aware of that, that is the starting point. You know, you've got to start from the home um, to be aware of that and read up and just be aware of your behaviors, be the way you can kind of conduct your everyday life because it has an effect. Um, yeah i think so yeah okay but what i'll do now is just sort of uh wind things down as you said it's been really good fun i think we're going to try and make this a monthly thing now we're monthly yeah now try and predict what's going to be the main news topic in july and uh and choose some books and films accordingly well thank you very much sarah thank you and we'll sign off here thank you for listening bye <laughs>